Hey, this is Dewey from Pure Pleasure on Jabberjaw Media. I wanted to tell you guys about the Patreon for the show. It's called the Pleasure Seekers Club, and there's two levels. There's the $5 level and the $10 level. And all this is, guys, is to help support the show, help support the cost of putting the show out, um, you know, time spent uh, building the show, hosting costs, travel costs to do the in-person interviews that you guys like so much. Um, it all costs money. And I always try to find the best deal for sure uh, because I do have a day job as well. But having that support on the Patreon is definitely going to help bring more in-person interviews, more travel, more uh, updated uh, graphics, hosting, websites, all that stuff. So, um, And if you like the show, $5 a month or $10 a month really helps out. I know it's kind of uh, an interesting thing with the Patreon when something's already free. Uh, but it is always going to be free. But if you want to support the show a little bit more, I'd absolutely appreciate it. Uh, you can pay either $5 or $10 a month. We'll try to do some special things for the patrons as well as we go. Um, but it's just a way to support the show in a different way. And uh, like I said, I really appreciate you guys coming back week after week. That's the most important thing I can ask for. So definitely go over and check out the Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Podcast. Once again, that is patreon.com slash Podcast. Sign up today and join the community and help out the show. Keep it growing. And I thank you so much. Hey, this is Doc Coyle, host of the X-Man Podcast and part of the Jabberjaw Media Podcast Network. The X-Man Podcast is where I talk to professionals in the music world and other creative industries about the challenges and transitions of leaving monumental ventures. This podcast is for those passionate and driven 20 to 30-somethings at a crossroad trying to figure out what's next. Listen and subscribe at JabberjawMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. What's up, guys? This is Dewey from Pure Pleasure, and I want to tell you about Jabberjaw Media. Jabberjaw Media is an independent talk and entertainment podcast network. We're proud members of the network and encourage you to check out many of the other shows on the network. Just this week, Jabberjaw added five more podcasts to the network, including three new music-based podcasts, Poor Taste, a cocktail-based podcast, and Too Old to Date, a scripted comedy podcast based in New York City. These shows add to the already amazing roster of music-based shows, which have been a part of the network since its inception. Head over to JabberjawMedia.com for more information on all these shows. See you soon. What's up, guys? Welcome to another week of Pure Pleasure with Dewey Halpas on Adobe Radio and Jabberjaw Media. 
I am Dewey, your host with the most, bringing you great content once again another week. We have Miss Portia Sabin, Dr. Portia Sabin, if you will, uh, from Kill Rockstars Records. She's the president and also the host of the Future of What podcast on Jabberjaw Media and on X-Ray FM. So we're super glad to have Portia on. I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. We went in a lot about her story and what brought her to being the president of Kill Rockstars. And uh, I'm going to keep this intro short because we did go a little long on the interview and I want to make sure everyone hears everything on Adobe and on iTunes. So definitely check us out on purepleasurepodcast.com, on Instagram and Twitter. Definitely check out our Amazon affiliate link. Check out our stickers we have in the store now. We've got a couple sticker designs up purepleasurepodcast.com click on the store link and it'll take you right to them you can check those out they are for sale to help the show um, and we're going to get right into this interview with Portia Sabin from Kill Rock Stars here we go Portia Saban, welcome to the Pure Pleasure Podcast, uh, president of Kill Rock Stars Records, um, also the host of The Future of What, which is one of the newest shows on Jabberjaw Media uh, as of this week. This will air a little bit later, but uh, welcome to you, to, to Jabberjaw for one, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Dewey. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Well, uh, I wanted to start kind of uh, early on. I wanted, I, I kind of, because we've 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 talked in the past, um, and you know, we did. I did your show, um, but I wanted to kind of know where you grew up and uh, kind of your childhood. What kind of shaped you into what you're doing now? Well, I grew up in New York City in Manhattan in Hell's Kitchen, um, and my father was a stage actor, and my mother was a casting director. She cast TV commercials. So I grew up in a very showbiz world. Um, and yeah, I mean, people always ask me if growing up in New York was exciting. And I don't know if, you know, really dirty, gross subways are exciting, but I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> I think my childhood was, was pretty normal, you know, when I talk to people who grew up in, you know, nice suburbs and stuff. I mean, we went over to each other's houses. We sometimes went to the movies. It was, it was a pretty normal childhood. Sure. And, and growing up over there, I mean, w did you have a lot of freedom in that, in that time? I mean, I know things are different now, but, but being in such a, a tough area, did your parents give you a lot of freedom to just go where you wanted to go? And, um, especially being, you know, in the, the entertainment scene. Oh yeah. I mean, comparatively it's crazy. Like when I think about what the seventies was like growing up and now, you know, you have kids, I have a kid. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're so careful with kids now. We're like, don't do this, don't do that. <laughs> and I was like out on, you know, I mean, I was out on the street. My parents let me do things like, um, I remember having a table out in front of my building, um, selling little things, you know, I, for a nickel, whatever, like <laughs> stuff, toys and stuff from my room. 
you know, and just going to the park by myself. I mean, I, they just let me, and I mean, I took the, I took the bus to school by myself, not the school bus, but the city bus starting when I was eight. You're kidding so me. I, no, a city bus. And I did that all the time. I mean, throughout my whole school career, I, I took always public transportation. You know, I started to take subways, not till I was a little bit older because I had I went to a different school and had one that I had to take the subway to get to. But I took buses forever. Um, and, you know, it wasn't scary. Like people think that that was scary, but buses were just crowded with, you know, people going to work and kids going to school. It was a very normal, you know, non-scary experience. But when I think about it now, I was like, I wouldn't put my eight-year-old on a bus. No <laughs> way. <laughs> I wouldn't let an eight-year-old go it's check the mailbox. <laughs> the mail, right? It's crazy. <laughs> that's absolutely crazy to think about. And, I mean, that's hilarious. That I was know. your first merch table right there. Like you, you yeah, that's right. Everything, it's, it seems like everything was predetermined now. This makes a lot more sense because... You know, parents in the entertainment industry, you know, being around, you know, artistic types, I'm sure, you know, actors and, and, um, you know, just creatives probably shaped quite a bit of, of who you were going to become. Oh, yeah. And I wanted, of course, to be an actress in the early days because that's my dad was an actor and I was, you know, I grew up in the theater from the early, my earliest memories are going to the theater with my dad and watching rehearsals and being backstage and just that awesome backstage smell, you know, of like grease paint and, and cut wood and, uh-huh. you know, all the, the ways that backstage is smell. Um, so I wanted to be an actress. So my parents let me start doing TV commercials when I was five. And so I did a couple TV commercials when I was five, six, seven. And really? then when I was 11, I actually got cast. Uh, there was a, a TV show called Gimme a Break uh-huh. with Nell Carter. And um, I actually got cast as the youngest daughter on that show. And um, they were going to fly me to Los Angeles. And and my father just said, nope, you're not doing it. Really? Because he knew what was coming? Yeah, exactly. It, you know, and it's funny because at the time, of course, I hated my dad. I was so mad and I cried for days and. My mother was even kind of like, why don't we just let her go? It's, you know, it couldn't be that big of a deal. And my father was like, no, this will ruin her life. And when looking back, I have to say I'm really grateful to my dad because, you know, you look at the kids who were on, um, you know, different strokes, like that girl who ended up, you know, robbing the the (laughs) dry cleaner that she worked at, you know, after her child acting career was over, (laughs) just like the horrible consequences of of being a child actor. So honestly, in in grateful that he didn't let me do that, but at the time it seemed really rough. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it worked out cuz that you know, that that could have been a whole another direction. I mean, maybe you would have maybe you'd be, you know, winning Oscars and everything else. You know, it could have gone the complete opposite direction, but at the same time, I think you've done pretty well in, in what you've been doing and and I'm sure you're happy in what you're doing. So I mean, that's Oh yeah. That's all you can ask for. So so wanting to be, it seems like there's a few things that, like you, so you wanted to be an actor, actress, and then you ended up getting into music. How did, how did that, did, did yeah. you get into music like through theater and, and things like that? Or did something strike you that just turned you on to music? You know, I just was, I just loved music very organically. My, I, I thought of this just a, like a year ago. Um, I had never thought about what, 
records we had in the house when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. But it it's true. We had we had classical albums. My parents liked classical, and we had show tunes albums. So we had you know tons of cast recordings of Broadway shows like Evita and you know whatever. We had we just had tons of of cast recordings. Some of which my father was on because my father was a singer, a, mm-hmm. a singing actor. He did uh, several. He was in Three Penny Opera with Raul Julia in 1976, I think, in uh, on Broadway at Lincoln Center, and then uh, they also did it in the Park, the free Shakespeare, the free Shakespeare in the Park thing. Um, and he was on the cast recording of that, and so we had some cast albums, and we had some classical, and we had one rock album, and it was Sgt. Pepper. And now. Looking back, I'm like, I think that that is exactly why I have the musical taste that I have because of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, like, yeah. honestly, because I really like, you know, like Robin Hitchcock. Um, I just like sort of like singer songwritery rock, you know, Beatles style rock, but then, you know, through an American filter, like I like, you know, I just, I was, I really liked the music of the early 90s that was pre what we now call grunge uh-huh. but it's kind of like a heavier heavier alternative you know what i mean yeah i just like music where people have emotions to express like where they've got something to say sure that's my favorite um but i really got into music when i was about 10 and it was a little young but i didn't have older siblings i was an only child so i was sort of on my own and the first album i bought when i was 10 years old was jay giles band freeze mm-hmm. frame okay and yeah, and then I just got really, really, really into music. I used to tape things off the radio, which is how people did it back in those old analog days, uh-huh. <laughs> and make mixtapes, you know, for my friends. And I had one really close friend named John who um, we started giving each other mixtapes when we were like twelve. We started making mixtapes, and so he's the reason I got into Dead Kennedys and Circle Jerks and um, Dead Milkman and you know, a variety of stuff like that. Sure. And yeah, so we just, you know, we were just really, really into music as kids. And then when I was 14, I decided it was high time. I learned to play an instrument and I really liked John Taylor from Duran Duran. I thought he was really good looking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I didn't think that being a groupie was an interesting career choice. Like I didn't think like hanging out outside (laughs) of a venue to like, hope that you know your your hot musician guy saw you as like a thing yeah so instead i was like you know i could if i became a bass player then john taylor and i would have something to talk about oh my god so i took my friend john and we went to um one of the one of the old music stores on 46th street and i bought a bass and a little amp Mm -hmm. and we we brought it back to my house and i tried to learn how to play bass and you know, I really wasn't very good at it. And I was also, it turns out, like, it's kind of hard to do that when you're not in a band. Like, for me, you know, I, I just wasn't the type to sit in my room for hours practicing. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to be in a band. But I didn't have anyone to play with. And I didn't really have, you know, the, the guys that I knew in high school um, had already been playing for so long that they were really good. Mm-hmm. So nobody wanted to play with someone who was just brand new. So for, 14 to 18, I actually didn't, play at all with anyone you know I I practiced in my room a little but I didn't do it and I just was like I was an obsessed music kid you know I went to rock shows whenever I could I bought tons of music but I couldn't actually find a band to play with so I was frustrated in that way until I got to college 
and then thank God for college. You know, it's, it's, I think it's like that unique chemistry of, um, not only are you now in a, in a, in a world that's a little bit more accepting of new stuff, you know, it's like, even the guys who had been playing for years were willing to play with someone who hadn't played. And also me just completely not giving a fuck anymore and being like, I haven't, I'm not, I'm not shy. Like I will go on stage and suck. Like mm-hmm. I don't care. You know, like, yeah. I just want to do this really badly. So it's like, <laughs> I don't care. So I got in a band like my very first day of college with some guys and I was in bands all the way through college um, as a kind of sucky bass player. And then I like my, I think it was literally like the first week of my senior year. I walked into a band practice with a new band that we had just said like, Hey, let's start a band. And Mm -hmm. we all showed up and there was this woman, Tamara, a friend of mine playing drums. And I was like, Oh my God, do you play drums? And she's like, well, not really. I actually just found out that there was a drum room here at college and you could, and you could take lessons here. And I was like, (gasps) and the next day I was there with my like hundred bucks in my hand, like, teach me how to play drums i was just like it was like a light bulb went off you know i was just like that's what i have always wanted to do and then the day after i took my first drum lesson i got into my first band as a drummer (laughs) because i was at that point seriously like not giving a fuck i did not care i was like this is just my destiny and thank god there were these nice guys at my college who was who were willing to play with um a a woman who absolutely could not play drums at all Mm -hmm. um and I never stopped playing drums after that point. Like I was in band after band after band after band after band to the point where like I was in a band in college and we ended up, uh, once we graduated, moving to Minneapolis to like make it in the music industry. That was our plan. Like the whole goal uh-huh. <laughs> graduate from college, go to Minneapolis. And so in 1993 in Minneapolis, you know, that, that early nineties were just after Nirvana were just like this explosion of, um, you know, major labeling, label signing craziness, right? Like major labels were signing things left and right. Anything that sounded like Nirvana. Yeah, exactly. And they had discovered that there were these scenes in these towns that they didn't know, like Minneapolis and, and Seattle and, you know, they, and so Minneapolis had been producing a bunch of bands, you know, soul asylum who went on to have a major label career that sounded nothing like their, you know, early stuff, which was amazing. Um, uh, Babes in Toyland. I mean, there were a ton of bands coming out of, of Minneapolis in the early 90s that were really exciting. So we were like, that's the place to go. So we moved there. And of course, that did not work out. Um, but I'm sort of getting ahead of, of myself. So did you, did you want me to back up? Or- well, I want, I, the other thing I wanted, well, talking about college, the other big thing with college, I think, is it's your first real chance to reinvent yourself without without having parents around like middle school to high school yeah. you change a school you can reinvent yourself somewhat but you still go home every night and your parents are saying what the fuck's wrong with you what's wrong with your hair what you know what are you doing but right. when you get to college right. you get to reinvent yourself again and it's kind of your your um where you blossom into whatever you're gonna you know start to become and and uh that's awesome that you just started just you know what i suck i don't care let's just do it let's start a band let's grind and grind and grind and that's uh that, yep. I like that. And you're phd as well, right? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. In Anthropology and, and education? That's right, yeah. So how did that come about? I want to know about that first before we continue on the music stuff because that's a whole different direction. 
and a lot of money and a lot of time <laughs> to put into something and then <laughs> well, completely change it. Well, and it's intertwined because it, here's what happened, Dewey. So, so here I am moving to Minneapolis to become a drummer, you know, to be a drummer in a band. And, and I worked in a coffee shop. And when that band broke up, um, I was in a whole ton of other bands in Minneapolis, but I was really miserable in Minneapolis. And I, I, I started going um, to the University of Minnesota. I think I enrolled for like a quarter. Mm-hmm. And they, there were two things I was doing. One is because I had a, I had a, anthropology had been not my exact major in college, but sort of my focus. Like, mm-hmm. and I had done an anthropology uh, semester abroad. So I got myself onto this program that was a federally funded anthropological study of the um, AmeriCorps program. Mm -hmm. And the University of Minnesota was was part of it. And so I ended up, I must have been doing this as a volunteer. I ended up volunteering to do ethnographic research for them at a a Hispanic, um, mainly Hispanic, community center in St. Paul. Mm -hmm. So for like a semester, I did this study. And so I was connected to the University of Minnesota. And I would, you know, we'd have meetings and I would go back and report my findings and, you know, talk to everybody. And and, um, during that, you know, in that group of professors and whoever else was involved, somebody told me, you know, there's this great anthropology and education program at Teachers College at Columbia back in New York. Mm -hmm. And so they just put that little bug in my ear, right? And they were like, you might like that program. It seems like it's kind of up your alley. So at the same time, I, I also was like super duper depressed. Like I was really miserable. And so I started going to like the free counseling sessions. They give you like three free counseling sessions at the University of Minnesota. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of my third free counseling session, the lady says to me, she goes, you know, you actually seem pretty well adjusted. She's like, did you ever think that maybe you just hate Minneapolis? And I was like, Oh, that's really? And she's like, you could, you could leave, you know. I was like, I can, because I was 22. Yeah. And when you're 22, you think that the decisions that you've made are the ones that you now have to live with for the rest of your life, and yeah. because now you're an adult, and so you better like man up, right, and uh-huh. like do what you said you're going to do. And I had, li- you know, I was living in Minneapolis. My grandmother had died. I was living in this big house. My mother had shipped all my grandmother's furniture to my house. So it's like, I just felt like I was putting down roots in this place Mm -hmm. and I had to live there forever. And so I went home and I called my mom and I was like, can I come home? And she's like, uh, yeah. And I was like, oh, and it was like, (laughs) boom, you know, fireworks. Yay. (laughs) And I literally have never been depressed since that, like that day, like not seriously depressed, you know, not like (laughs) thinking about walking into traffic depressed. Like I, it just changed everything. I was like, yeah, I can leave. So, um, I did leave. I went back to New York, went home to New York. I dealt with my grandmother's furniture. And as soon as I got to New York, so this is early 95, I picked up the Village Voice. I turned to the classified sections. I found a band looking for a drummer and I called them. <laughs> like, so the very first thing I did was get into a band immediately upon uh-huh. arrival in New York. So I'm in the band for like two months. I'm temping at some like, you know, um, Solomon Smith Barney style uh major whatever investment banking firm Mm -hmm. and i'm thinking in my brain my mother is never going to be okay with this like 
because this could be my life. Like I am happy, right? Like I'm playing in my band at night. I yeah. am doing this dumb, you know, work for a investment bank in the day. I am a happy person, but I'm like, I'm like, my mother is never going to be okay with this. Like I am not doing something. I am not giving back the investment that she put into me. Right. Yeah. Like, I got to do something. So I took a walk up to uh, Columbia and I mm-hmm. went up to teacher's college and I walked into the anthropology and education office, which was literally like two offices in a room, like very tiny program. And the guy who was running the chair of the department happened to be there. And I went in and I chatted with him and he said, well, you seem nice. Why don't you throw in an application? So I did. I mean, I am 24, right? I know nothing. Yeah. Nothing. So I throw in an application and like a month later I get like, you're, you're accepted to this PhD program at Columbia university. And I'm like, okay, great. We'll start in the fall. That's awesome. Oh my God. So, like literally, I don't know what the hell I was thinking because, <laughs> and it took a while. I mean, it, it took a while for it to sink in because first of all, I walk in the first day, there's 11 of us. The other 10 of them are easily 10 years older than me. Mm-hmm. I mean, to a person and they all have master's degrees and they're all very serious about this. Right. And here I am like, doodly do Hi, I'm 24. I'm a drummer. I thought it would be fun to go. This program. <laughs> I didn't know what I'd gotten myself into. It was so crazy. So, um, you know, I just did it. I just kept going. I mean, I loved it. I, I am obsessed, obsessed with anthropology. My field is uh, uh, American culture. I'm obsessed with American culture. Like, I loved it. I loved it. I couldn't have been happier. And I'm playing in a band at night and, you know, I'm going out to rock shows all the time. I had a very happy life in the 90s. Um, while I was doing this whole grad school thing. And it wasn't probably for like four years. Like I probably went to grad school for a good four years, got all my classes, Mm -hmm. pretty much everything done prior to the dissertation before I woke up and thought like, what am I doing? Like, why am I doing this? Uh Because it started to become clear that all my classmates were on, like they were planning to to do tenure track professorships. Like Mm -hmm. that's where they were headed. And I kind of was like, you know, I don't know that that's what I want to do. But I also just felt like a deferment. You know what I mean? Like, it felt like I didn't have to, I could do my rock thing and not have to worry about the future. Like, mm-hmm. it was very, it just kept my life on hold for a really nice long period of time. And um, so the band that I was in from 95 to 99 uh, broke up. And I was immediately asked to get into this other band. And I did. And that band started to get somewhere like that was in 99. We actually started to, you know, we put out a record and we went on a tour and then we ended up getting signed to what it turned out to be a very small independent label from Detroit. But still, you know, um, in living on the lower, you know, being one of the bands on the Lower East Side, we're all like jumbled together and, you know, just getting signed to a label that wasn't, you know, your friend Mm -hmm. was was like a big exciting deal um and then we toured the whole country and you know we just really started to do what bands do and and that was really great um so i was in that band from 99 to 2001 and um like i said you know i was still in grad school i was still doing what i needed to do um but i'd gotten to the point where it's like if i was going to continue to get a phd i had to actually go do my dissertation somewhere Mm mm-hmm and um, and my band had really, I mean, like like many bands do, I mean, I, I know how it is. You know, one of two things happens with bands. Either you literally can't stand each other to the point where you 
just break up because <laughs> yeah. you can't talk to each other. Or you find a workaround because the band is working well. And a, and a lot of people also just have a, a, you know, more of like a working relationship with their bandmates, you know. But yeah. my, my bandmate, my one bandmate, it was, we were a female power trio. <laughs> and my guitar, guitarist and singer was, was a very difficult person. And, um, and we were actually on set on a photo shoot for Interview Magazine for Levi's. It was going to be this like 20 or 30 page insert. I mean, it was, it, it came out. Yeah. Uh, it was an ad for Levi's, but it was in um, Interview Magazine and it was like up and coming hot bands of the year. And so we were in there. Um, I remember Cannibal Ox was in there. Do you remember that band? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, amazing. And so we're on the set of this and we're getting our pictures taken and the photographer said something and my guitarist said something super rude and my bass player walked over and punched her in the face. What the And fuck? I was like, that's it. I'm done. Wow. <laughs> like, nope. I am done with this. <laughs> this is because my bass player is still one of my closest friends to this day. She is the nicest human being. And for, for the singer to have said something so horrific that she actually punched her, yeah. I was like, that's it, we're done. I'm just not playing this game anymore. Oh, my God. So, um, so that, was, uh, that, was right, that was where that band ended for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I had also met Slim Moon the year mm-hmm. before. We started dating in 2000. He lived in Olympia, Washington. I lived in New York, so we did this long-distance thing. Mm-hmm. And one of the schools that I had applied to uh, or I talked to about doing my dissertation research because I had to do my dissertation research at either a college, an insane asylum, or a prison. Mm-hmm. And I decided that um, a college was going to be a way more calm environment for me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so Evergreen in Olympia was one of the places that I had uh, applied to or talked to. And Evergreen actually offered me, they said, yeah, you can come do your research here. Um, and we'll give you a free room. And in exchange, they wanted me to do an ethnographic study on a, a particular topic that they were interested in. And I mm-hmm. was like, great, that's a great swap. Yeah. So I contracted with Evergreen to come out there in the fall of 2001 and start living in the dorms and doing my dissertation research. So that's what I did. I, you know, I bro- I left my band and I moved. I didn't move entirely. I kept my apartment in New York, but I, I moved out and I lived in the dorms in Evergreen, mm-hmm. did my dissertation research. And, um, that was the first, <clears throat> that was when I started to get more involved with Kill Rockstars because, um, Slim ran Kill Rockstars and until that point I really hadn't done a ton with them. But when I was living out there, um, then I started to get involved because I stayed out there. And, and so like the next summer when Maggie, who did press, went on tour with her band, I, I did press for them for a month. You know, I ended up doing production for a while, you know, so I started to sort of like get my hand in at the label, find out a little bit about what that was like. And at the same time, I also started managing other bands because um, when I left my band, I was, you know, like I said, we didn't have a lot, but what we had was a little bit. And, and sometimes in those communities that goes far, it's mm-hmm. like I had enough experience to try to help some of my other friends um, who I thought were really fantastic to to get going so i had been managing this band called dirt bike annie for about a year a pop punk band Mm -hmm. and i was you know really trying to get them to sign to dirt nap (laughs) (laughs) that was like my goal i really wanted to get them signed to dirt nap you know and i I booked i booked 
three national tours for them myself back in the day where you just called people and left messages. There was no internet. It was, oh my God, it was so crazy. (laughs) So I was doing that. I was, I was managing and I, and I did my dissertation research. And then, um, I went home after my dissertation, uh, research and I lived in New York and I wrote my dissertation in eight months and I got into a new band with my old bass player. <laughs> Cause I just always had to be in a band. Yep. Not a second that could go by. Um, so I lived in New York for eight months and I wrote my dissertation and I played in the band. And then when I was done, I moved back to Olympia kind of for real. Like, mm-hmm. like this was serious. Like Slim and I had decided this was serious. Uh, we were getting married. Um, and, and that was sort of that. And, and so I moved out, to Olympia in 2003 and that's when I you know went into a weird limbo because um I now had to revise my dissertation you know there's it's there's a while between turning in your first draft of a dissertation and and actually having to defend Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and also Columbia University has a policy which is I think consistent on in the Ivies, but not necessarily in every um, every graduate school, which is that you need to have demonstrate proficiency in two foreign languages in order to get a get a PhD. Oh, and wow. I had I had passed my German. I took the German exam because that was my like high school language that I did was, was German. Mm-hmm. So I passed that like my first year. And then I had decided that my other language was going to be French because I didn't know Spanish at all. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I took French when I was in first grade. <laughs> like, I could probably do that. <laughs> well, turns out French is a little harder than that, yeah, uh, remembered first grade French. So I just could not pass the French exam. And you only got to take it once a year. So I was unable to graduate or even defend my dissertation until I passed French. So this was like this weird limbo in my life where I was managing bands, living in Olympia, doing sort of odd jobs for money. Yeah. Um, I worked at a kennel for one for a while, you know, like just, you know, I had these strange jobs and trying to figure out how I was going to pass my French exam. Um, and so long story short, I ended up taking a five week immersion class in French where uh-huh. they just speak French to you for five weeks. Yeah. And that did it. That was enough. So uh, when I went back to New York, I passed, the damn French exam. And then I got to def- defend my dissertation. I defended my dissertation. I walked. They, it's called a pudding when uh-huh. you get your, when you get your dissertation, when you get your, whatever, your PhD. Uh, yes. Thank you. I got hooded at uh, the, the, um, cathedral of St. John the divine in Manhattan, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then we had a cocktail party and then Slim and I got married in secret, like surprise. We had a surprise wedding at the cocktail party, which really? nobody knew was going to happen. Yeah, that was pretty fun. That's badass. <laughs> um, people were very surprised. <laughs> that's like combining, that's like making a cocktail of some of the biggest moments in your life all at once. Like, I mean, you go to school for so long, and so you're now Dr. Portia Saban. That's, that is correct. That's yes. insane. Like, does that feel amazing? Yeah. Like, you anything you do now, literally anything you do, you could go, you know, uh, you could go work at a kennel. Say you want to go work at a kennel or you wanted to go, you know, work at Wendy's for the rest of your life. Your your mother, you would now have to still call you Dr. Portia Saban. 
and could never say you didn't that's do right. anything. You you have so much freedom <laughs> right now. It's crazy. Like you can't. That's right. I mean, that's that's like the furthest you can go with. I mean, well, I mean, you can get multiple PhDs, I guess, but you've done that. You've done that to the fullest extent and now complete freedom. I mean, that's got to feel no wonder you're never depressed. That's amazing. Like you, <laughs> you can now do what you want and no one can say anything because you are a doctor. I mean, yeah, that's it awesome. feels good. <laughs> that's so awesome. And it's and, also, you know, go on. Well, you did it organically. Like you, you fought, you worked, you, you, you know, tried other things in the meantime, you know, you, you, you held it together and did it. I mean, that, that's admirable. I mean, huge. That's a huge accomplishment. I think. I mean, before you even started doing the things you're known for now. I mean, that was a whole, that's a whole nother chapter. And that's, yep, that's awesome. I mean, listen, kids, that if Portia can do it, you can do it too. Cause that's, that's, that's crazy. Right. I mean, that's right. Especially nowadays. And you did it before the internet. You booked tours yeah. before the internet. <laughs> Back when, you know, book your own yep. fucking life was actually needed. Like, that's, that's right. That's crazy. That's right. And then, so now you're yeah. you're married to to Slim. You get that all done at once, like one big bang, like bam. I'm married, graduated, done with school. You move you move out to to Washington, and you're working with Kill Rock Stars now. But you're not running Kill Rock Stars. You're working with Kill Rock Stars at this point. And so you, and you're managing. Well, that's where Shot Clock came in, right? With with the management. Yeah. Okay. So 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 wait. So so one other thing happened. Um, which continued to make my life weirdly bipolar, which was that I actually was lucky enough to get a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Washington. Okay. And that was really nice. I mean, I, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, and I, I had to, but it, it made my life a little difficult because I was managing bands. I was living in Olympia with Slim and then I was commuting every day to Seattle, which is about an hour and 15 minute drive mm-hmm. yeah. without, tons of traffic. Um, it's worse with traffic. And, uh, I was doing this job at the university of Washington, the study on engineering students. And I started managing one of the kill rock stars bands, this band called the gossip in 2005. Okay. I'm familiar. And yeah. And I, I didn't mention this too much, but one of the big things that I did in college that was really formative for me was when I went on that anthropology semester abroad, I, I lived in England Mm-hmm. And I was at the rock clubs in England every day in in London. I mean, it was a very big deal for me. Um, and when I was living over there, I really, you know, it was also pre-internet, so it's like I was devouring, you know, Melody Maker and the NME and mm-hmm. just, you know, really getting immersed in that rock culture over there and the music culture. And um, one of the things about the gossip when I started managing them was I really felt like this was a band that would do well in, in the UK. I felt like they had what it what it takes mm-hmm. uh, to to be big in the UK. So um, I was in the studio with them when they made their album Standing in the Way of Control. And Kill Rockstar sat on that record because back in the day, uh, it mattered what month you put out a record because of press. Like you could get more press during certain times. The internet has really changed that in a lot of ways. Like mm-hmm. now pretty much most months are similar. Um, but it, so they, were, they sat on that record for like eight months. Uh, it wasn't going to come out until January 2016. And um, so in the meantime, I worked on finding them a label in the UK. And we ended up going with this little dance label that had never released a full length. 
Um, but we believed in them because they had a lot of DJ connections. And I was like, you know, when I had lived in, in London, I had found out that one of the cool things about the dance clubs in London is that they actually play real music. They don't just play, you know, DJ music. Mm -hmm. They play actual songs. And um, I was like, this is going to be great for, for this band. You know, they're going to do really well in the dance clubs. And mm -hmm. they did. And they had a bunch of cool DJs remix their stuff. Um, so in 2016, we, I mean, 2006, we put out um, San Diego Wave Control on Kill Rockstars and then on the small label in the UK. And we, the UK response was instantaneous. Like we really started getting a lot of people excited about the band. And so I started having to fly to the UK with the band like every month. So I'm trying to do this postdoctoral fellowship in, in Seattle and I'm flying to the UK every month mm -hmm. from the West Coast, which yeah. sucks. And, um, and then about four months into 2016, my husband comes to me and he says, Hey, uh, I've been thinking, I don't think I want to run the label anymore. Would you take it over and shut it down? Really? And I was like, what? I mean, it was just really blindsided me. I had, I just didn't, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know that it, it was very bizarre. But he was at a point where he wanted to do something different. He'd been doing the label for 15 years. It was going fine. But he's, a, he's always like the next thing kind of guy, like mm -hmm. what's coming down the road. So he, he decided he got into his head. He wanted to learn what it would be like to work at a boutique major, which was Nonesuch Records. Okay. Uh, he was really interested because Nonesuch is, a, is, a, is like basically a boutique indie housed within Warner Music. Mm -hmm. um, so he had applied for a job as an A&R guy at, at Nonesuch. And, uh, he got the job and it was in New York. So he was basically like, would you take over the label, um, and move to New York? <laughs> so, <laughs> it was this really crazy moment where I was just like, what am I going to do? But here's the thing. I was not loving my postdoc. I, i I didn't, I had a lot of theoretical problems with their, you know, with their theoretical paradigm mm -hmm. and some of the ways that they were some of the stuff that they were putting out there as research findings, I, w I didn't agree with. And so it really was this come to Jesus moment for me, right? It was, it was like, I have to decide what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I have two solid options, right? I could, the music business I love and it's my passion and it's, you know, where my heart is. And then there's uh, anthropology, which I also really love, but I know I don't want to be a tenured professor. I know that's not a track that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of my, my experience as a researcher, and I'm not loving the research because it turns out that as a researcher on a project, which is you know, a $10 million project that's at seven schools around the country with God knows how many researchers, I didn't actually have that much say in the final product that was getting put out there. And mm -hmm. I didn't feel good about that. So I just thought to myself, well, I guess this is, you know, Thank you very much. I'm glad I got the PhD. I'm glad I got the experience, but I think it's time to move into music. I think music is is where I'm gonna where I'm gonna be happy. Yeah. So I quit my postdoc, and I told Slim I'd take over Kill Rockstars, and we, you know, had a big yard sale and sold everything in our house because we had to move to New York City, where you know you get 700 square feet for one million dollars yep. a yep. month. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, we knew we couldn't bring anything with us, so you know we just sold everything, which. Crazily enough, also included um, the uh, the PA system that Kurt Cobain had given to Slim 
uh, before he left Olympia and which he had put his guitar neck through. So we had this busted PA that we just cherished because it had been cursed. Yeah. Um, but we, we got rid of that too. We actually didn't keep that. You sold and that at a yard I'm sale. Mad. I'm like, Damn it. yeah, we sold it at a yard sale. We probably should have. Did you sell it for it what it was or, or did you sell it with the story behind it? Well, it was Olympia, so probably whoever bought it knew, you know. Oh, I mean, my God. They'd all know for it, too. So. <laughs> That's a Pawn Stars <laughs> find right there. That's a Pawn Stars find right there. You, take the, you, could, have bought, know, you right? could have bought a 700 square foot. Yeah. That's crazy. I know. Oh, man. We should have thought about that. Yeah. For some reason, that wasn't on our minds at, at the time. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Rat. Too bad. That's Looking absolutely back. insane. And that, it's so fun with the... So many people in that area, I mean, of course, knew Kurt. And I mean, I had an old boss that, you know, saw Nirvana in a living room where Kurt was singing against a wall because he didn't want to face the crowd of people hanging at this party. <laughs> and then he's like, you know, it's just strange how things happen. Like, I mean, he just happened to live in that area and everything started blowing up. And then he's like, yeah, you know, it was no big deal. And I'm sure to people that, you know, that knew him and, and had things that he it wasn't looked at the same way as people are, you know, fans that were, you know, know nothing about him except what he did and not as a person and, and everything becomes super valuable and blah, blah, blah. But that's, that's a hilarious story that, that, that was sold at a yard sale. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. It's funny. But, um, so yeah. So do you want to ask another question or should I just keep going? Well, you, you, so you moved back to New York and took over Kill Rockstars, Slim's uh, working for Nonesuch. And so what I wanted to know is, is um, I mean, taking over Kill Rockstars, were there things you changed? Because he wanted you to take it over and shut it down? Is what he you were did, saying? yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, he, he thought we would just sort of ro- roll it up, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but he had 27 records that he'd already committed to for 2007. Mm-hmm. So... I was in a position where I had I had to put out 27 records anyway. And so over the course of 2007, I was like, you know, and the rest of 2006 and 2007, I was like, you know, this doesn't feel like I should be shutting it down. It feels like, you know, I'm having a good time. I'm enjoying myself. I, you know, why not keep going? And I, I ended up signing three bands in 2007 that put out records in 2008 that did well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was kind of on this high uh thinking that that would be great now one of the things about my husband is that he really is a visionary Mm -hmm. like he's he's an idea guy who's a genuine visionary and i personally think he had actually seen the recession coming the music the crash in the music industry Mm -hmm. um because that happened you know 2008 2009 pretty much everything crashed and things really got hairy in the music business for a few years Mm -hmm. as as in many other businesses so um you know i wonder if he just wasn't thinking like we should get out before things go really bad yeah uh and now thank god we were able to keep the doors open but you know we had to lay off a ton of people we had to make a ton of changes in how how we did things because, you know, you have to roll with the times and, and, you know, there was the download moment and now there's the streaming moment. You know, you, you kind of have to just stay on top of it Mm -hmm. um, and make sure that you're, you're capturing the income streams where they really are. And I think that's been the big challenge for me in the past 10 years has been 
uh, you know, because you have to actually, you know, I get hundreds of emails from startups that say we're going to be the next big thing. And you have to be savvy enough to figure out which of those is actually really going to be the next big thing, which is, which, which is going to be the thing that someone actually, that people actually use. Yeah. You know, because it's like when Spotify came into the market, we didn't know for sure that people were going to use it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we didn't necessarily throw all our eggs in that basket because we're just like, well, it could take off and it could just wreck everything, you sure. know, devalue music to point zero zero four three cents or whatever. And then, you know, be terrible. So, it's just it's just a hard that's been the hard part of the of the job of figuring out um just like what's going to happen. But yeah, that that was so I didn't shut it down. I kept I kept it going. Um the gossip went on to go gold in the UK the next year. Mm-hmm. Um and I just had to keep plugging away, you know, just put one foot in front of the other and and figure out what I needed to know. You know, Slim yeah. was off. He was doing his none such thing. We were living in New York. We were going out to see bands all the time. You know, it was a very sort of hectic moment mm-hmm. um, to be learning a new skill like how to run a, a record label. <laughs> yeah. And, well, I mean, everything you've done, it, it's really inspiring because, I mean, you just go at it and figure it out and and kind of make your own way, so to speak. I mean, it's it's really inspiring to to hear the story of, of just how it all came to be. I mean... Literally, just I'm going to do this. I'm I'm going to try this out, you know. And and you've you've you know successfully you know had some longevity in the music business, especially with all these changes. And with that, I mean, I mean, I I was curious, what now that you're running the label, um, you know, the whole download crack, everything has kind of passed now, and we're kind of in the wake of all that. Um, what do you look for when you're when like say you're out looking for a band or a band comes to you? What are the things you're looking for uh, nowadays versus you know before the the download nightmare crash? Well, I would say that probably what we're looking for in bands is exactly the same as it always was. Okay, but the difference is that we don't have um, the same. Like when I took over the label in 2006, if I put out a brand new band, I could probably guarantee it would sell about 2,000 copies, mm-hmm. right? Which in a 2006 market is not was not very much. Yeah, that was that was just a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. But it was like with with the Killer Rock Stars brand and the state of the industry, we could probably sell about 2,000 copies, right? And mm-hmm. if it did well, you know, it would sell, it could it could sell more. Um, Nowadays, 2000 is like not a reachable number. You know, it's, it's, that's actually really like, you know, everybody says like a hundred, 10,000 is the new hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know, physical that's, copies. That's sort of where physical copies, mm-hmm. that's, that's where we're at. So, um, you know, 2000 is asking a lot, but also the way that the economics of it work, 2000 was a really nice number because 2000, you know, if you sold 2000 copies, and you spent like 3000 on the recording and 2000 on press and you know whatever else 2000 on manufacturing let's say you guys you could break even on on that if mm-hmm. you sold 2000 right so mm-hmm. it's like it would work out the the band would get a little money they'd get paid we'd make our money back you know it it would be it would be a good deal for everybody and the the new economy of this 
is is so different that you have to be more frugal. You know, it's like I I don't feel good about um, putting out a record that I don't think I'm going to be able to recoup on mm-hmm. because that's just not fair to the band. Like why why would I do that, right? If I can't recoup on it, so they'll never make a dime. It's irresponsible of me to say, hey, let's do this. The only possible argument for that could be if the band is you know, planning something where they're like, we don't care if we never make a dime because we, it's a stepping stone on, in our part of our master plan or something. I don't know. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm spitballing. I, I don't know. Sure. But for, so it's like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to put out a record that we're not going to make any money on, especially since the way the economy has changed. You can put out your own records now. You know, you, you can easily put out a record on CD Baby. You can put it out on Bandcamp by yourself. You know, you can do it in a way where you'll make the majority of the money yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, you'll put in the money to record it and everything, but you'll make the majority of money back yourself. So, you know, if I, if I meet a band that I think is terrific and I think has a lot of what it takes, but I don't think we're really going to be able to sell much, I always tell them, I'm like, go ahead and put it out yourself. You know, that's a really, really good option at this point. And, um, and I think that what I look for in a band now is, still the same in terms of great songwriting, great live show, you know, great attitude, work ethic, you know, mm-hmm. they got to be willing to tour like crazy because that's where you make your money yep. um, as a band. And that's also your job yeah. <laughs> as a band. Absolutely. Um, but I also am more prone to put out a, rec- a record if it's by a band that's already done some of it themselves. Like, for example, last year we put out the Summer Cannibals record it was their, um, they'd already put out two of their own records on their own label that they started. And they had also put out some other people's records on that label. So they were like very well versed in the music business. Mm -hmm. They'd been on a couple tours that they'd managed to get themselves. Um, you know, they were positioned well as a band that all, that pretty much clearly knew what the job was that they were getting into. And that I think is, is so crucial, right? It's like, you have to be great. You have to be a great songwriter. You have to be you know, great live show. But if you're not positioned so that you understand what the job is, you know, that's like the kiss of death because I've had, and I've, I've been wrong. I've, I've taken risks and been wrong. Mm -hmm. And and so has every label head, every single one in the world, because you think, you know, bands, every band says I will totally tour, but if they've never toured before and then you believe them and then they go on tour and they hate it Mm -hmm. and they like break up or stop touring or be like, we'll never do that again. You know, it's like, you're like, oh, wait, did you not know that you'd miss your girlfriend? And did you not know that floors were hard and like sleeping on them is uncomfortable? Like, which part of this did you not understand yeah. like, when you went? <laughs> you know? Very true. So you don't want that to happen. You want a band that's like, we know the floors are hard. We know my girlfriend's going to miss me. We know, you know, all this stuff, but we're going to do it anyway because we know it's the job mm-hmm. and we and we like it. You know, there's a lot of bands that are just like, we love it. I mean, I... My bass player and I, we were like, you could throw us in any van going anywhere. You know what I mean? Like, we'll go and play anywhere. <laughs> we're mm-hmm. like, okay. <laughs> she was amazing. She would like, we'd stop at Denny's or something, and she'd get breakfast, and then she'd like put pancakes in her purse for later. Oh I love my her, god, so that's awesome. I still love her. <laughs> but she just like had a plan. You know, she was like, I will never be hungry. Like, I got this covered. She, yeah. <laughs> yeah. she was like a touring machine. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> Oh my god! Um, so you got You got. You got to be that way. You know, it's like that's that's part of the job. Yeah. And 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 there's plenty. You know, Dewey. Between you and me, as you well know, I'm sure there's plenty of 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 good bands out there. Good. Yeah. You know. Yeah. There's very few great ones. That's very true. There's not that many great ones. And mm-hmm. and you know, if you're gonna if you're a good band, there's no reason you can't be successful. But you got to work 
super hard. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the part that I can't stress enough. That's why I started my radio show partially. Like, we got to get people, I mean, my podcast, you know, we got to get people to understand this is a job, man. You yeah. got to put your nose to the grindstone. You got to really work. And if you're really only just good, you got to work double hard. You know, you got to work as hard as you possibly can and try to get better and all that stuff. That's great. But like, just work it because this is not an easy industry. This is not an industry that is forgiving. This is not your mom. You know, it's like, I feel like there's so many people out there who are like, well, I played this song and you know, my friend really liked it. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to go out and be a rock star. And it's like, dude, yeah. Uh, you know, everyone can write one good song. (laughs) That doesn't mean anything in the light of eternity. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's a hundred percent true. And, and people don't realize that. And, and, uh, yeah, I, we, man, we're going to have to do a part two. This is fantastic. I, I feel so inspired now after this last while. I mean, just hearing your story and, and, uh, you know, you're extremely intelligent and driven and, you know, very inspirational. And I, I mean, we really need to do a part two. We're running out of time here, but, um, and we could go into, you know, podcasting and everything, which is a whole nother realm, which we could, we could probably go on for hours talking about, which I really want to do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I really appreciate, um, you coming on the show and, and, uh, so glad to have you on the network and, uh, you know, you've done some amazing things. You're putting out great content and uh, keeping it real and, and uh, real inspiring. And, and I really appreciate, um, you know, you coming on and, and uh, chatting with me today, Portia. Dewey, it was such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, we'll do we'll do a part two because we I want to do uh, I want to do a podcast on the podcasting side, which we did not have time to get to. Uh, but I think this story right. was Sorry. really important. I think this was really important to get out there. And, and hopefully a lot of people take things from it. Um, I think it was really valuable. So, um, But cool. anyways, but thank you for coming on the show. And, and we'll do a part two uh, if you're down for that at some point and uh, dig into life uh, post or I guess after the after the podcast started. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Fabulous. Okay, Portia, we'll have a great okay. day and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Okay. Thanks, Dewey. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, guys, that was my conversation with Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars Records and host of The Future of What on Jabberjaw Media and X-Ray FM. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. We did run a little long, so I made everything a little shorter as far as the intros go. Definitely check out the website, peerpleasurepodcast.com, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Check us out on Facebook. Like us, rate us, review us on iTunes if you like the show. Definitely check out that Amazon affiliate link and check out the other shows on Jabberjaw Media. We've got more great guests coming up for you this month and going forward every week. Saturdays at 6 p.m. on Adobe Radio and available on iTunes right after that. So thanks again for listening this week, and we'll see you on the radio.
Are you looking for a new set of scrims or a backdrop for your live show? What about wall flags to have at your merch table or online store? This is Dewey from Peer Pleasure, and I want to tell you about ArtistFlags.com. ArtistFlags.com has the lowest pricing and the best quality around. Their prices start at $119, and they can help you choose the best material and sizes for your band, all while keeping your budget in mind. Use the coupon code PEERFLAG, that's P-E-E-R-F-L-A-G at checkout to get $30 off your next order. Satisfied bands who have used ArtistFlags.com are Dance Gavin Dance, I Prevail, Darkest Hour, Senses Fail, Ice Nine Kills, Lorna Shore, Afterlife, and many more. Check them out today. Hey, this is Doc Coyle, host of the X-Man Podcast and part of the Jabberjaw Media Podcast Network. The X-Man Podcast is where I talk to professionals in the music world and other creative industries about the challenges and transitions of leaving monumental ventures. This podcast is for those passionate and driven 20 to 30-somethings at a crossroad trying to figure out what's next. Listen and subscribe at jabberjawmedia.com.